Well, I am uh, I'm not a mechanic in any way, and my friends would never confuse me for one or accuse me of being one. But one time, there was one time, where I helped a friend, Ken Friesen, many of you know him, uh, change the head gasket in, uh, in our vehicle. And if you don't know what that is, uh, it's an important gasket, and if it's not functioning properly, your engine will be in a lot of trouble. So that, that's a, probably enough information for now. Uh, but to get at it, you can't just reach in and, and just kind of pull it out and, and fix it. To get at it, you've got to pull apart most of the engine. And so that's what we had to do. That's why I did not want to tackle this on my own. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting when you do that, you have to start with one part and pull it apart and then another section and pull it off and another one and pull it off. And so you can see how, you know, an engine is made up of different parts and components, um, but all of these things, you know, work together to form the engine. <clears throat> And if you lose sight of how all these parts fit together, then you're going to be a bad mechanic. And in our case, you know, then we weren't going to be able to get the thing back together again. <coughs> and many people treat their lives like this. They separate out different parts. So we have you know, work, we have family, we have uh, finances, recreation, and, and church or, or worship over here, and we, we have these things uh, separated, and then they've, they've, but they fail to see how all these things fit together, particularly with our worship, and how these things are all related to worship. It's as if these things are separate and, and unrelated, when in fact they're not. And so many people are fine with the idea of, of worshiping God in some sense. Uh, but they, they think they can keep certain areas of their lives to themselves. Uh, again, as though they're somehow unrelated to worship. So, you know, we, we can have our worship category, uh, compartment, if you will, and, uh, and, and we might give it, you know, a little time on Sunday, and, and we might, you know, people might give it some money even. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, our money and finances are separate, and, and that's for us. And our time is really separate, and, we, we, you know, we'll use it how... We want to use it and for our own you know, pleasure and, and whatever we want. Or you know, we might also think of marriage and think, you know, our, our marriage really and who I marry and what I do in marriage isn't really, you know, we, we could separate that out from, from our worship as well. And we don't see how these things relate to worship. <clears throat> and Malachi, the book of Malachi, exposes this human tendency and then blows up the concept. And so we've already seen this in marriage. We saw that uh, the people of Malachi, in Malachi's day, <clears throat> back in chapter 2, uh, they, were, they were really uh, coming to the Lord in, in complaint, wondering, why does He disregard us? And, and oh, how can this be? You know, we, we worship. We have this worship category. We worship Him. We bring these sacrifices. We do these. And yet He's not regarding us. How can this possibly be? And we see that all the while in their marriages, they were completely and utterly violating what God had made clear for marriage. And so they, they've, they've separated it out and they have no concept, they have no idea, they, they don't realize that these things are related. Their worship of God and their practice of marriage were actually related. They have separated those things out and they don't see how those fit together. So we've seen this already in, in marriage and we're going to see it again today as we come to our text and we're going to look at 
how true worshipers are marked by giving to God that which belongs to Him. Giving to God that which belongs to Him. And we'll see uh, that really, ultimately, everything, everything in these areas that we tend to want to separate out and they're not necessarily related to our worship, all of these things really are related to our worship. And all of it ultimately belongs to Him. So I invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Excuse me. And we're going to look at the, here, here's our outline. Here's where we're going. So, number one, we're going to look at how true worship begins with repentance. It's verses six and seven. And we're going to look at how true worship includes giving to God that which belongs to God. And then finally, look at the blessing that true worship brings. So, first of all, true worship begins with repentance. Read with me uh, verses six to seven. So, Malachi 3 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how shall we return? So the Lord begins by declaring here, I, the Lord, do not change. This is a very clear statement of what is often referred to as God's immutability. That is, uh, the fact that He does not and the fact that He cannot change. This This is part of who God is. He's always the same in His character, and His actions are always consistent with His nature, with who He is. And so why does, why does he bring this up here? What relevance does this have? Well, if you'll recall back uh, last week, at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, they've actually, they accuse God of having changed. If you'll recall, uh, they are accusing him of now approving of those who do evil and being opposed to those who do good. They actually think he's 180'd uh, on what God has clearly stated throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, that he you know, is just, he is against those who would invert justice and right and wrong. Now they're accusing him of that. He's, he's clearly changed. But that's not the case, and he says it explicitly here. And the specific aspect of his unchanging nature that he points to is his faithfulness to his people. Because he doesn't change, Israel is not consumed. He says that, therefore you are not consumed. Because I don't change, you're not consumed, O children of Jacob. Despite, in verse 7, their unfaithfulness, their history of unfaithfulness from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Despite this, they are not consumed. Why? Precisely because God is unchanging. He keeps his word. He has not changed. Again, Israel complained that God had changed in his attitude toward them. And that this famine they're experiencing, this uh, difficulty they're experiencing, that life back in the land after exile has not, is not all that they thought it would be. It's not all he said it would be. He's changed. But the fact is, the only reason that the people have not ceased to exist is precisely because God hasn't changed. Ezra understood and proclaimed this, uh, Nehemiah 9.31. 
If you remember, if you were here on, on Wednesday, we talked about where the book of Malachi fits into Nehemiah and how uh, Ezra in, in chapter 9, 31 would have been some years just prior to Malachi, but a lot of the, the people would have been the same folks that uh, later on uh, in Malachi, under Malachi's ministry, had um, again uh, turned back from the Lord, away from the Lord. Um, but but in the time, at a time of revival, under Nehemiah and under Ezra, Ezra exclaimed this, when he gives this, he, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, Ezra gives this whole history of Israel, according to, basically summarizing the Old Testament scriptures, and then he says, and, and in it he, he recounts their unfaithfulness, but he says in, in 931, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. The Lord had been faithful to Israel throughout their history. Even in exile, he was just keeping his promises to them. And he had made other promises that had not yet been fulfilled, and he was not turning his back now. And we even saw last week, he's, he's coming. He's sending a messenger, and then he himself is coming to the temple. And we know ultimately that would happen as, as, Christ, as John the Baptist came to prepare the way, and then as, as Jesus Christ himself came. So the problem that these people were facing, most assuredly, was not that God had somehow changed. Rather, the problem that was that Israel was once again turning their back on the Lord. The Lord tells them there in the second half of verse 7, which we just read, the Lord says to return to him. He says, return to me and I will return to you. The word return is sometimes... Uh, translated repent, that's often the, the meaning of it, and that's certainly, as it's applied to Israel here, that's certainly what, what is in, in view here. That's the meaning, that's the intention. They are commanded to turn back from their sin, away from their sin, and turn to the Lord. This would include acknowledgement of their waywardness, like what uh, Ezra acknowledged in, in Nehemiah 9, and it would be uh, require a turning to the Lord in faith, a turning to Him in humility. And the Lord says, return to me, and He says He would likewise return to them. Now, He's just established His faithfulness to them already, so there's a sense in which the Lord has never actually left them. But this means that He'll return to them in the sense that the rightness and the friendliness of their relationship will be restored. And He'll bring about then blessing for them, which we'll see in just a moment. So it's a picture of reconciliation. This return to me and I will return to you. It's reconciliation by means of the people's repentance and turning to the Lord. And yet the people have no understanding of their need to return to the Lord. They don't, they don't see it. No grasp of their waywardness. How shall we return, they ask at the end of chapter, verse 7. It's effectively asking, what are you talking about? You know, what, what do you mean, how are we to return? Do you not see we have a worship category? We bring sacrifices. We're here. We do these. What's, what else is there? You know, what do you mean? What have we done wrong? How shall we return? Many people today, likewise, have this have really no concept of their waywardness from God. The human condition is such that we think very highly of ourselves. Uh, we, 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 we do not think our sins are a very big deal. 
Uh, everybody does it, no big deal. Uh, there's lots of people worse than me. We've all run into this over and over. Moreover, we're, we're told by many today that if we preach repentance, uh, mankind today will not stand for it. Sure, in centuries past, maybe men responded, women responded to you know, a, a call to repent, to turn from their sin, but not today. You know, it's too intense, it's too in your face today. The problem with that, of course, is that we don't get to pick the message that our king tells us to deliver. Ambassadors don't determine the message, they deliver the message. And in the case of Scripture, God has always called wayward men and women to repent, to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord in faith. This was the need of Israel all the way back in Malachi's day. It was their need long before Malachi's day. It was the message throughout so much of the Old Testament and through the prophets, turn back, repent, come back to the Lord. And it's the message of the Gospel. It's the message in the New Testament as well. It's man's need today. The good news of the Gospel, of course, is that Jesus has died. He's, he's risen from the dead. He's defeated sin and death. And the call then from God to sinners is to repent. To repent and to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, the, 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 the response to the gospel, it's not to um, you know, walk an aisle, it's not to raise a hand, it's not to uh, ask Jesus into our hearts, that's not what the Bible tells us uh, to do. The Bible calls us to repent, to repent of our sin and to look to Jesus Christ in faith, to plead to God for His grace and mercy. Sinners are saved by God's powerful grace through faith and repentance. Repentance and faith, you can think of it as two sides to the same coin, really, ultimately. Repentance, we could say, is the, the turning away from sin, and faith would be the turning to the Lord in faith, trusting Him. So you can't divorce those, those two things. So as I said, this message of repentance is throughout the Old Testament, and it's throughout the New as well. When Jesus sent out his 12 disciples in Mark chapter 6, what did they proclaim? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You know, according to many people, that's not very Christ-like to go out and proclaim the need to repent. And yet here it is, Christ telling his disciples to proclaim that. And they did. Acts 3.17-20, to 20, Peter and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did all your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, and he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. There's the, the gospel being preached early after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Repent, turn back to the Lord. Later in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, in verse 30, he declares this, a bunch of pagans in the crowd, right? people who, who really know little, if anything, about the true God. And he has explained to them that God is the one who created all things and established the borders of mankind. And he says at the end, near the end of his, of his sermon, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so if someone is to truly worship God, they must come to him on his terms. And he says, repent. And so the call of the gospel is to recognize your sinfulness bankruptcy before a holy, unchanging God, the God who created all things, and to repent, to turn away from that sin, and to trust that Jesus Christ is, in fact, able to forgive, able to save because of his work on the cross. True worship of the Lord begins with repentance. Secondly, true worship includes giving to God that which belongs to him giving to God what belongs to him. Read with me, starting in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food In my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. We'll read the rest in a bit. The people ask again, What do you mean we need to repent? Return to God. In what way? As we've seen uh, throughout Malachi, there's not just one issue here with these people. There's not just one sin that you can point to to say that's really the issue. There's a lot of things going on here. There's a lot of ways in which these people need to repent. But the thing that the Lord points to here is that they're robbing him. They're robbing him. So repentance involves putting an end to this. This is obviously, we'll get into what that means, but a bad thing. So they need to repent of that, turn back from that. The absurdity of the notion that one could rob God is found uh, in, the, in the statement, in the question, will man rob God? Think, How is that possible? No. And that sounds like a really terrible idea. But as absurd as, that, absurd as that is, that's precisely what they're doing. That's what he's saying they're doing. And again, they dispute this. How have we robbed you? The Lord responds, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So what is this? What is happening here? In the Old Covenant, in the Law of Moses, Israel was commanded to tithe. Tithing, a tithe is really a a tenth. And so the people were to bring a tenth of all that they grew, along with their contributions from the vineyards. They were to bring these things to the temple. Some of it was eaten by the worshiper there, Uh, And some of it was then given to the Levites so that they could eat while they served and worked at the temple. It took care of of the Levites. They could live off of it. Also, every three years, the tithe uh, would go to the poor. They would hand out uh, to the poor so they would have food as well. So that's what the tithe was. But also in Israel, I think it's helpful to know that the land was viewed ultimately... Uh, as being the Lord's. The land itself that they farmed, that they grew crops on, vineyards, etc., was the Lord's. It was His land, and Israel were tenants of it. They took care of it. They were stewards of the Lord's land. Is His land. And it's almost like a feudal setup where Yahweh 
the Lord is the king, and the people work his land. Um, so in Leviticus 25, 23, it says this, I think, fairly clearly, one of the more clear places, though it's throughout the Old Testament. But Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So this, this in its context, had to do with their practice of, of buying and selling land and the year of Jubilee. They were only to, really, you didn't sell it forever to somebody. Uh, you'd sell it up until the year of Jubilee when, when everything would go back to the original uh, family members who originally uh, worked that, that land. And so you would just sort of take the price of almost like someone would rent it for you, from you until that seven-year point, and then you would get it back. And this was to be their practice anyway, because ultimately this is the Lord's land. And he's determined how this is going to uh, work out, and they work the land for him. And then the tithes and contributions were really ultimately his due. Right? They work his land, and they bring the tithes to his house, to the temple. And so to hold back on these things was to rob the king, the owner of your land. It's his land. It's his food. And he says to bring a tenth, and they don't. And so as absurd as it is, and absurd as it sounds, they're actually robbing the Lord. They're robbing God. Again, if you were here Wednesday, uh, as we went through Nehemiah, I pointed out how Malachi takes place likely between um, Nehemiah's two visits to Jerusalem, his two uh, sessions as governor. There had been a revival of sorts during Nehemiah's first term, but after he left, the people again uh, rebelled, descended into rebellion. During the initial revival, the people publicly renewed their commitment to the Mosaic Covenant. They renewed this covenant in a public way, and in it they vowed uh, to bring tithes and contributions at the threat of a curse on themselves if they don't follow through. So, in Nehemiah 10.29... It says that we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They enter into a curse. Keep that in mind. Then in verse 35, I'm going to read a few verses from Nehemiah 10.35. We, this is what the people claimed. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, there's that word, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the sons of Aaron shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Also a word in our Malachi text. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So this is what was in the law of Moses. This is what they agreed to do, what they are obligated to do. Again, notice in the words I just read, the words tithes, contributions, storehouse. These are all words right here in Malachi. And I think what's happening in Malachi is he's saying, you, 
you, you're obligated to this. You've actually publicly said you will do this to threat of curse on yourself. And now what we're seeing is they've abandoned this. They're not doing this. They don't bring the tithe. They haven't been bringing all the contributions. They haven't been taking it to the storehouse at all, or at least not the full tenth anyway. They've gone back on their word, and so, as verse 9 says, they are under a curse. We'll see this more in a minute, but the Mosaic law came with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28 uh, makes that very clear, and we'll see that even again here in another moment. But two of the curses promised in Deuteronomy 28 are pestilence and locusts. These are two of the curses that are going to come upon the people if they forsake the Lord and abandon His covenant. Pestilence and locusts. And in verse 11, which we'll get to, this is precisely what they faced. Their crops were failing and this devourer, which is locusts in all likelihood, is devouring their crops. So in fact, this curse has come upon them for their failure to keep the covenant, to obey the Lord. So the Lord was owed the tithe tithe and the contributions. It was a gift to him that was a way of taking care of the house of the Lord by feeding the Levites and priests who worked there. And this was held back, at least in some measure. Uh, Again, we'll see, he's going to say, bring the, in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, storehouse. Bring the full measure of it, all of it. So again, it's likely they probably gave a little bit, uh, but they're holding back. So repentance for these people in Malachi's day included putting an end to this robbery and giving to God that which was rightfully His. So the principle, I think, that's here for us is that as believers, we are to give to God that which belongs to Him. We're to give to Him that which He asks, that which is His. And this has implications for us then, certainly for our finances, but also far beyond just our money. If you'll recall from a few weeks ago, um, when we were looking at um, sacrificial offerings in chapter 1, um, 6 to 14, we talked about how the New Testament says that as believers, as those trusting in Christ, our very lives are to be an offering to the Lord. So as those saved by grace, God has enabled us to lay our our very lives down at the altar and and to present them to Him, to live for Him. This is our our spiritual offering we give to Him. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12.1 is clear on what that spiritual sacrifice is. It's our very lives. He says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul also says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Then he says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the context of 1 Corinthians 6, he's he's applying that to to, uh, sexual immorality, that we're to honor God uh, with our sexuality and how we practice that. But 
the principle that he's appealing to to make that case is the fact that as Christians, you are not your own. You've actually been bought with a price, and therefore you're to honor God with your body. And that, that principle has implications uh, that, that go everywhere, not just to our sexuality, but all over. You know, that we are not our own. We actually belong then to God because we've been purchased by Christ. In all we do, in all that we are, we're to worship the Lord. So as those who've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, let us then not rob God by compartmentalizing our lives into these different sections and areas and refusing to give them to the Lord, refusing to give them uh, the Lord what is His. And there's many ways we can can do this. Um, First, certainly, uh, we can do that with our, our finances. Okay, the finances are in view in our text here. Uh, and, and just, I, I'll just say this. Um, many of us have, have perhaps been taught or perhaps um, learned that, you know, when we bring offerings now, as New Testament believers, we're bringing tithes. Um, but that's not actually correct. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to bring, uh, to bring a tithe. The tithe is tied to the Mosaic Covenant, to the Old Covenant, and it doesn't transfer to the New Covenant. So again, as we've seen, it's not just about, you know, a tithe is not just about money. It was about the crops they grew, uh, their fruit, all this stuff. They were to bring a tenth of that to the temple and to the Levites. Well, there's no temple now. There are no Levites to take care of. So the the tithe doesn't just transfer over suddenly to to the New Testament, and nowhere does... um, the New Testament used that language to speak of our uh, financial giving. But the New Testament doesn't lack in instruction and teaching on giving, on financial giving. Um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I'm not going to go through it all now, but, but has some of maybe the most extensive teaching about that in the New Testament. And there, nowhere do we see a specific amount being demanded. Nowhere do we see a specific percentage demanded of believers. Paul tells them to give what they've determined in their hearts to give. He tells them that they should do so cheerfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion. They should do so out of a gratitude for the Lord. It's described, it's called an act of grace. Uh, So there's no curse looming over our heads saying if you don't give so much, then you're going to be cursed as there was with the, the Old Testament believers in Malachi's day. But we do also see in 2 Corinthians that giving results in, uh, in, in great blessings for us and for others, and we'll come to that in a moment. Um, we're also told giving financially um, to the work of the Lord, to helping out brothers and sisters. Um, it's described as sowing seed in God's kingdom, and we're told that it reaps a harvest of righteousness. The Macedonians were celebrated in that same passage because they gave above their means, even. even above, so they were giving sacrificially, that's what that means. But again, there's no percentage demanded of us. We like percentages because then we can just check it off and we're done with it. Right? And we've, we've done it. We don't need to think about it anymore. We like that idea. Just 
tell me the right amount, and I'll, and I'll put that in, and I'll get on with my day, and I'll rework my budget so I can, you know, do what I want to do. We like that idea of a percentage. But the New Testament teaching continually challenges us wherever we are at with whether we are giving joyfully, with whether we are giving willingly. Simply putting a percentage doesn't help us get there. So it challenges us with whether we are excited about generously participating in the Lord's work with our finances. Our money, ultimately, it's the Lord's. And so it's appropriate to give, it's good to give, it's right to give, but it's ultimately between you and the Lord as to how much exactly that is. But I would also encourage us and challenge us just to make sure we don't make the mistake of thinking that your finances are simply your own, as though it really has nothing to do with worship. Don't separate that out and pretend the two are not related, because we see here they, they clearly are. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So it's right, it's good to prioritize uh, giving to the Lord. There's other common ways uh, we might uh, try to hold back from God what is His. We might try to rob God, um, certainly our time. Uh, We tend to think of our time as our own. Phrases like me time, we all know what that is, it's time for me. Sometimes betrays this kind of thinking. Uh, we, we labor and we work hard to get free time so we can do what I want to do. And sometimes we can just kind of give that time over to the flesh almost and just sort of whatever I feel like doing, this is what I'm going to do. But again, the time belongs ultimately to the Lord. So again, there's no rule of how much recreation is too much. There's no percentage of your time given. But our time is the Lord's. Our work, we've discussed this before, but our work is, a, is an act of worship to the Lord. We're to work as unto Him, not for our own selfish advancement, not to please other men or women, not simply to just pay the bills, not simply to get through to the weekend when I can have me time. Our work, likewise, is the, it belongs to the Lord. It's to be for Him, ultimately. So we need to try to understand that all we have belongs to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. That includes everything we are, everything that we have. And it's the great privilege of the believer to spend and to be spent in service to the Lord. And so, may our uh, exercise be to honor the Lord with the bodies He's given us, not the pursuit of vanity, May our eating be to the glory of God, seeking sustenance that will help us to serve Him well. Enjoying the gift of flavor, certainly, that He's given us. It doesn't have to be bland. But we are to eat to the glory of God. Paul tells us that. And we, la- and we kind of laugh at that. But it's, that, there's a reason for that. Because we belong to Him. So we want to fuel ourselves to serve Him. May we think of our sleep as something that restores us so that we might live unto God, to present ourselves to Him. And on the list could go. So let us give all of these things to the Lord and not hold them back and try to separate them out as though you know, they really don't, you know, aren't related to how we worship. Our very lives are the Lord's. 
Paul talks about pouring himself out as a drink offering to the Lord, spending himself as an offering to the Lord. And so obviously, we are going to fail at this, and obviously, we're going to need to confess that to the Lord. But this is to be our aim and to be our our goal. Thirdly, finally, true worship brings blessing. It brings a blessing. This kind of worship results in blessing for the worshiper. Read with me verses 10 to 12. The Lord says, "Bring, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord tells his people to bring in the full tithe and he even tells them to test him in this. He says he'll open the windows of heaven, that's rain. He'll pour down rain. He'll rebuke the devourer, the locusts, so that their crops will be plentiful. They will not be destroyed. They would again be a land of delight and they would be blessed by other nations who would see it and declare that they are blessed. Again, this was part of the promised blessing for Israel, keeping the covenant stipulations of of the Sinai covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. And Deuteronomy 28 uh, lays these out very clearly. With regard to testing the Lord, the New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus says that we're not to put God to the test, right? As he's tempted by Satan, you can see that in Luke 4. But here we see God inviting them to test him. So how does this work? Well, just a couple of things quickly on that. First, um, what we see in Malachi, this is not an invitation for us to test the Lord in any old way we please. It's a specific invitation for the people of Malachi in his day, the people in Malachi's day, to test God in this very specific way. So that's the first thing. It's not saying, it's not giving a prescription for us to just, oh, any old way you want, test the Lord. Second, it's an invitation, really, to stand on the promises of God, to prove his word to be true. It's not a test that's built on doubting God, but quite the opposite. It's not a test that is trying the Lord's patience, so to speak. He's saying, essentially, see if my promises are true. See if I keep my words. See if I am the same and don't change. See if I don't bless you. Try it. Do it. So again, it's not testing God like Israel tested him in the wilderness uh, when they grumbled because they had no water and in lack of faith and in uh, uh, a bad sort of testing They claim the Lord has despised them and brought them out to kill them and destroy them. It's a very different thing. So it's an invitation to stand on the promises of God. Thirdly, um, we're not to test God by presuming upon things that he's never promised or that he's never promised absolutely, as with Satan's temptation of Jesus. So Satan twists the word of God to say that Jesus should just be able to jump off and and the angels will carry him. And the Lord never actually promises that that's going to be the case. He's twisting the word of God. Uh, So we're not to test God in that manner, as Jesus points out. 
But he's calling them here to, to test his promises. I promise this. Stand on it. Try it. Watch me. Again, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant as New Testament believers, but the New Testament does speak of the blessings that accompanies our obedience. Our salvation is not a result of our obedience in any way. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. We receive that blessing of salvation by grace through repentance and faith. That's a gift from God. But the Bible still speaks of our obeying the Lord and speaks of it as, as bringing blessing. 1 Peter 3.9, we're told, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that so that you may obtain a blessing. And he goes on there, Peter goes on, in 1 Peter 3, to acknowledge that sometimes we will still suffer for doing good. So we might bless people, we might do what's good so that we may obtain a blessing, he says. But he does go on to say that sometimes we will suffer for doing righteousness. We will suffer for doing good. So clearly the blessing may not always be in the form of a nicer or easier trouble-free life. Okay, It's not necessarily a blessing that is going to be materially obvious. Right? This is, some people distort the New Testament's teaching on, on receiving blessings as being, you know, playing off of our greed uh, that we should do good so that good will come and then we can have all that we ever wanted. And, ah, that's, not, that's not what this is talking about. The blessing may not always be materially obvious, but among other things, you will have the blessing of a clear conscience for faithfully following after the Lord. Also, we see the blessing that comes in the New Testament to those who give to the Lord. This is clear as well. Second Peter nine, I mean Second Corinthians nine, ten to twelve speaks of this. I mentioned this earlier. This increased harvest of righteousness. He talks about how giving results in many thanksgivings. Okay, so by supplying the needs of others, the result was thanksgiving. The giver was blessed by the Lord and the receiver was blessed by the gift and gave thanks to the Lord for it. Paul even says in Acts 20 that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, how's this? How can that be? Well, I think Philippians 4.17 helps. Paul had received gifts from the Philippians, money, help in his ministry. But he says, not that I seek the gift, he's grateful for it, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Their joyful giving was fruitfulness. It was evidence of the Lord's change of their heart, the Lord's work in their lives. It was fruit. And this made Paul even happier to see that than to get the gift. He's happy to see fruit in them. And so it's a blessing for those people who gave because they're producing fruit. And he calls it in Philippians 4 a fragrant offering. He calls it acceptable, pleasing to God. It's a blessing and it's a joy to do something that pleases your Lord. You know that. When, you're, when, you, do, when you are able to be obedient, does it not make you happy? Do you not enjoy that? 
Not that you say, wow, I'm awesome. That would be wrong. But to say, praise the Lord that I even have that desire and was able to follow through. It's not something that earns our salvation, but it nevertheless, when we obey the Lord, pleases Him. And it's fruitfulness for you. The blessings of obedience are not always materially obvious, but we, you know, we could suffer for righteousness, and we do. We know that's also a promise of Scripture. But there will always be the blessing of fruit, producing fruit, and doing what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, many want to compartmentalize things. They want to keep things away from the Lord. Okay, and, 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 and we, we, we can do this, and we can still feel good about ourselves, because we've, still, we've got a category for worship. Right? So we want to separate as much as we can out of there, but we can still feel good about ourselves because we worship. And that's what happened in Malachi's day. They don't know what's wrong. They don't think there's anything wrong. We, what do you mean? We worship. But this giving to the Lord what is His is a mark of true worship. This desire to keep things from Him is empty. Empty piety. It's coming to God on our own terms. True worship begins with repentance. It includes, you know, this repentance then includes giving to the Lord what is His, ultimately our very lives. And such repentance and such worship in God's grace results in blessings upon the worshiper and blessings upon others as well. Ultimately, you and I, none of us, we cannot hide from the Lord. And so, the call is to repent of our sin, turn over to Him everything, all that we are. It's not simply an acknowledgement, okay, yeah, I'm sure I've sinned. Yeah, sure, that's not good. It's to recognize our utter bankruptcy and need for Him that everything I am is sinful. Everything I have rightfully belongs to Him. Empty the closet where your skeletons hide. Turn those things over to Him. Turn from those things. And if you're trusting Christ for your forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation, He's your only hope and you know that. And you trust that. But if you also know there are certain areas of your life that you don't want Him to claim, that you just don't like the fact that He would want you to give that to Him, Perhaps you struggle to hand that area over. You want to keep that separate from your worship. Whatever that area might be, ones we've talked about today or others, the call today is to repent of that. To confess that to God. To hand that over to Him. And again, I would ask you, isn't that ultimately what you want? If you're trusting in Him, to be submitted to Him. Pray for help in overcoming your sin. Fight the good fight. We will wage this war until we die or until the Lord returns. We will always have to fight to surrender every area of our lives to the Lord 
This is, just, this is not going to go away. Nevertheless, it's, it's what's appropriate for us as we now belong to another master. And so as we fight, let us keep our eyes on Christ, the Lord Jesus who died for sinners and is our only hope of glory. He is good and He is faithful. He begins the work that He starts in believers. Take courage in that. Find hope in that. Look to Him. And remember, He's worthy of your struggle against sin. And He is faithful to help you. He's worthy of your struggle. He's worthy of your very life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. And God, we just confess to You that we are sinners. And even as we trust in Christ for forgiveness of our sins, your word continually exposes us. And it exposes us that there are areas of our lives that we don't want you to have, that we still struggle to give to you. Lord, I pray that you would break us of this. I pray that you would help us to desire above all to hand those things over to you. That you would help us to to fight the fight against our flesh. Help us to take courage and confidence, knowing that you will complete the work you begin in us, that you will bring about, ultimately, you will bring about the completion of our salvation when Christ returns and at the resurrection of the dead, when we will receive perfected bodies And we will ourselves be perfect. We will be like Christ, like our Redeemer. And we long for that day, even now. Lord, I pray you'd encourage us in our struggle against sin. Help us to not lose heart. We've not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding our blood. And so the struggles we have are not unique to us. Help us to remain faithful, to remain diligent, Lord, help us to truly hand ourselves over to you, that we would give you our our very lives and, and seek to give you every aspect of it and hold nothing back. Lord, thank you that you graciously and tenderly convict us of sin. Thank you that you graciously don't give up on us. We pray you would you would work sanctification in our hearts, that you would indeed bring about fruitfulness, that you would bless these, your people, as they seek to follow you, even imperfectly. We pray that you would delight in them for the sake of your Son, Christ, and that you would bring about further fruitfulness, and that you'd be honored in our midst, and you'd be honored as we go out from this place. And we just thank you for, again, for your, your, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.